Good morning, church. We are excited about the missions conference, and I got nervous when my elder was calling us to take our pledge. I'd forgotten to make my pledge yet or try to do that before to be example, but I found in our app, it's very quick and easy, and I was able to do it before he finished his speech. So try it. We have great technology. You not only do it on your card, uh, the card in the pew, but you can make the pledge um, on your app. And we're believing God to be generous in all ways. You can see we're already behind in our budget for the church. There are all kinds of things raising money, all kinds of institutions raising money around our city. But we want to believe God to show that uh, he is a generous God owning the cattle on a thousand hills and making us so generous that we would marvel at his uh, greatness and his ability to make us generous, praying specifically to double the number of pledges given to missions this year beyond what we've ever done before. It's going to be a great week. Please turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 5 and it is various ways of numbering these visions. We're coming to the end of them one way or the other, whether there are eight and now or nine. I'm so appreciative for the courage of the children's uh, ministry uh, volunteers and staff who give a big overview of what these are about, and they nail it every time. It's very grateful for Peggy giving us a summary of, of what is going on in these final visions of God's strength. Let me remind you of where we've been so far, and you've remind you that uh, Zechariah 5 is found on page 795, 795, and the Bible's provided for you. Let me remind you of the visions we have studied already. <clears throat> we studied the man among the myrtle trees and the four craftsmen, the measuring line around the temple, the priest, a lampstand, scroll, the flying scroll, the basket with a lead lid on it. Today, storks and horses. Now, what do these present? Let me remind you what we saw from each one. Each one is a different ministry aspect, characteristic of Christ as our Redeemer. The whole Bible is about Christ. You don't read him into the Bible. You can't understand the Bible without understanding it's pointing to Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment of all these visions that come in the night, just when we are despairing in the darkest of times. Christ shines forth as our Redeemer, providing everything that we need. So the man among the myrtles was our advocate. The craftsman represented Christ as our avenger. The measuring line, Christ as the protector of the church, the priest, our substitute. The lampstand, the spirit of Christ, the power of the church, the scroll, the word of Christ. The basket with the lead lid on it. The justification of Christ, justifying our sin. And today, the storks and the north, what will they represent well, together they represent strength, as Peggy said, but a very specific kind of strength, one you would never guess on your own. What do we still need from Christ? You'd never guess it, but let's find it. 
in God's word. Chapter 5, verse 5, we'll start reading for context. Chapter 5, verse 5, and through chapter 6, verse 8. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes. See what is that that is going out. And I said, what is it? This is the basket that's going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. The mountains were made of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. The dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. With the word of our God, we'll stand forever. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Please open our eyes, O Lord. Dear Jesus, help us to see and know and believe your strength. And let us know that, that particular way that particular way that at the end of all history, you will demonstrate your strength for your people. Humble us with it today. By the revelation of it today, make us feel more urgently the need for personal evangelism, as well as for participation in the work of evangelism and mission throughout this world. In Jesus' name we pray it, God's people said together, amen. Miroslav Vov is a Croatian theologian. He's from Croatia anyway. He's been teaching in America for many years at Fuller and, and at Yale. Like so many theologians in Europe, he was trained by those who would identify themselves as theologically liberal. And the theology that he learned in his day was one that presented God as only loving. 
any mention of his wrath, any mention of his justice, any mention of his judgment was thought to be archaic, something of the past, something of pagan gods, something unenlightened. God was only loving all the time. Well, it is true that God is love, but there was no mention of his anger as an expression of his love, his judgment. Wolf went on in that theology for a time. It seemed to work for him while things were stable in his country and in his life and his theological studies in America. But then the Civil War broke out in his home nation, Yugoslavia, at the time. 200,000 people were killed. Three million were displaced. He said, my villages were destroyed, my people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine, I had no place in my theology for an angry God. And he started looking around at the rest of the world. He looked at Rwanda and he, he, 800,000 people hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage, he asked? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators? Basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Falth goes on to say, Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because of his love. Can these two go together? You say, oh my goodness, I came to church to feel better. I came to church to hear about a loving God. And here he's talking about an angry God, just what I've always feared. You can't have a loving God. And yes, you understand how angry he is at sin. So angry that he poured that wrath out on his son who in turn will pour it out on those who refuse to bow the knee to him. There is no comfort without the wrath of the lamb. Now to appreciate that, to appreciate what, what it, the comfort, the, the, the security that it brings to know that Christ is not passive, that God is not an absentee grandfather. To appreciate that, we have to understand what form his wrath has taken against sin in the church before we can properly understand and pray for the wrath of his judgment against those workers of evil. To to understand it properly is to understand it humbly. It is, first of all, to see our own sin and God's wrath against it, what he did against it. 
And that is helped by this this image that we had last week. I just need to go back and make a stitch before we come into the the other uh, visions. But you remember last week, there was this idea of a basket, an ephah, a measurement of a bushel. And it was a just measure. And so if you were going to have a just dealing, a trade deal over an ephah or a bushel of, of grain, it had to be put into this just measuring device. It had to be justified in its measurement. So you put it there and it was measured and then there was a fair trade. Then, so here, here's the image, he says, of our sin. He takes up our sin and he puts it, he deals with it justly by putting it into the basket. And then he puts a lead lid on it that can't be removed. And I said that was the image of the atonement. Our sin went on to Christ. It was measured properly by God. We confessed it. He puts a lid on it. It can't be opened again. That was good news. Some of you found found that to be an encouraging different sign or symbol of the atonement. But remember that that sin was called wickedness. It's personified in a woman. Now, dear sisters, don't get offended that the sin is personified as a woman because there are two women who come along and and take care of the sin. So women are ultimately the heroes of the text. Don't get hung up yet. So it's personified as a woman named wickedness. Now, the Jewish believer hearing this in Hebrew would say, hmm, I've heard that word before. I've heard that word translated wickedness applied to a wicked woman in the Bible. A couple of them, a woman and her daughter, Jezebel and Athaliah. You may not have heard of Athaliah, so let's stick with Jezebel. Jezebel, a wicked woman. And Jezebel is the personification of the most vile wickedness and her husband Ahab in history. May I remind you of what happened with Jezebel. Ahab, king of Israel, married Jezebel against the Lord's direction. She was the daughter of a Sidonian king, a Sidon. She was a Baal worshiper. And she wrapped her husband around her finger and they went on a pogrom to remove the worship of God from Israel. She killed uh, thousands of of, uh, hundreds of prophets and there would not have been anyone left to prophesy if if, if one named Obadiah, not the prophet we we read about or studied earlier, but uh, uh, hid these prophets. And Elijah was a holdout. Jezebel set on out to exterminate the land of the true worship of God. And God warned through Elijah, if she doesn't repent, if Ahab doesn't repent, I'm going to destroy them. Ahab did repent. We'll return to that later. Jezebel did not. Finally, God raised up Jehu, Elijah prophesied, if Jezebel does not repent, I'm going to destroy her and there will be no remnant left of her. She will come to a horrendous end. She never repented. And so he sent Jehu after her. 
And she came out to meet him dressed like a priestess, standing on a platform so as to say, come at me because my God is greater than yours. And he calls up to the men standing around her and he said, throw her down. And they did. And she was consumed by dogs. And her bones were ground up and made fertilizer. What did she do that was so evil? Well, not only did she kill the prophets, but Ahab, her husband, decided one day that uh, he wanted a piece of property owned by a a poor, uh, just a simple farmer named Naboth. And he, he, he went to Naboth and he said, I want to pay you for that vineyard. I really want that vineyard. I want to make it my uh, vegetable garden. And, uh, and, and Naboth said, uh, no, this has been in my family for ages. I'm not going to sell it. It's worth more to me than any amount of money. I'll give you more money. I'll give you another piece of property. No. And so what does Ahab do? He comes home and he pouts. In fact, he pouts so severely, he can't, he can't eat his supper. He goes to bed and Jezebel comes in and says, oh, precious what's wrong with you oh that that poor man wouldn't sell me his vineyard oh i'll get that vineyard for you and so she invites naboth to a party and she hires some men to surround him and uh, she says make some accusations against him that he's a blasphemer and then take him outside and stone him and that's what they did they accused him being blasphemer they took naboth out and they stoned him and then ahab took his property and he was happy and elijah said for that you will die Oh, it's wicked, isn't it? Oh, that's the kind of person, that's the kind of person we want God's judgment on. We're so glad, we're so grateful that God is an avenger of evil. That God gets the best of those kinds of people, stands up for the little man. And in the Bible... And in the New Testament, God says, when you covet someone else's things or life, or when you get angry that things don't go your way, you're as wicked as Ahab. The same wrath that you pray to come down on the Ahabs of the world You can't withstand, I can't withstand either in our own pathetic, imperfect righteousness, our best deeds, which Isaiah says are like filthy rags. Yes, wicked judgment will come down on all such sin. It's bad news for us as it was for Jezebel, as it was for Ahab. So where is the good news? There is no good news in, that, in the thought that God judges on a curve, that as bad as, I, as, as bad as I am, I'm not as bad as that. There's no good news in that. There's no good news in your hope of righteousness, of 
doing good enough good deeds to outweigh the bad. There's no good news in trusting in the decency of your parents or your grandparents or your lineage or your country. There's no good news in any human being, any human effort, no good news anywhere. There is only good news if you lift up your eyes. We lift up our eyes, you see these two women coming forward. I lifted my eyes, he says, verse 9, and I saw, behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Now, a Jewish believer listening to this would also hear uh, a, a double entendre. He would hear a play on words with the word stork. He would hear faithful one. So here is my wickedness. It's been put in the basket and it's going to be judged. But, but, but what hope is there for me? I can't justify that. I can't take that basket away. There's nothing I can do in my own strength and resourcefulness to get rid of that basket. That basket has to be dealt with. Nobody, no other human being can open the lid, but that basket exists and that sin has to be dealt with. And here he looks up and he sees a faithful one. A faithful one who with wings picks up that basket and takes it to a place, the land of Shinar. You see that verse 11? Some places translated Babylon, not Babylon, the, the, the uh, Mesopotamian Babylon, but, the, but, the, but Babel. The Babel of Ezekiel's vision. The Babel or Babylon of John's vision in Revelation 18. If we cast our eyes all the way forward to Revelation 18, we see where this basket goes. It goes to that place called Babylon in Revelation 18, verse 21. That is hell and it will be taken there and it will be justified and it will be no more. That's where he concludes. Chapter 18, verse, that's the picture in 1821. The basket of our sin. If we put our faith in Christ, if we lift up our eyes beyond our pathetic attempts to right, be righteous, lift up our eyes, we see the faithful one taking our sins, taking them to hell, rising in victory over them, and then saying, ultimately at the great day, that sin, your sin, and all the sin that needs to be dealt with in this world will be no more. What should that good news do for us? The great Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, one of the greatest, if not the greatest American theologian, said in, in answering people of his day who were believing in the high the higher Christian life movement, the perfectionism, this idea that I can make myself deserving of God's grace. I can assist him. He said, oh no, there is, there is no hope. There is no hope of living against sin until you despair of bringing any righteousness before the Lord. 
he said, feeling continuously unworthy of grace is the gospel the Reformation brought. You know, it's, it's not a poor self-esteem movement. It is rather that feeling continuously unworthy of grace. I do not deserve grace. It, 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 is, it is forever thinking. When I see anyone doing any sin on the face of the earth, never thinking, well, at least I'm not that bad. It is always first thinking, I thoroughly don't deserve grace either. The second key to living in that good news is, is, or the second expression of living in that good news is that it becomes abhorrent for you to think of returning to sin because you remember the misery of it. When you, when you have been set free by grace alone, plus nothing else, justified by the blood of Christ alone. You're thoroughly ashamed of, you continue to be thoroughly ashamed of your sin, but that makes you grateful for his righteousness. And then the thought of returning to the misery of that. Remember how guilty you felt. Remember how entangled your life was. Remember how far away you felt, your, your disfellowship with God. You remember the misery of that. That makes you all the more want to live for him. And thirdly, it is an eagerness to do good out of joy. Warfield said, it is an overmastering exultation. The tune of your joy is directly proportional to your sense of how little you deserve grace. She loved me, Jesus said of the woman who anointed his feet. She loves me much because she's been forgiven much. And he didn't mean she's been forgiven a lot so she can love much. I'm so sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Pharisee, uh, Simon. I'm so sorry you can't love me that much because I know you don't have much to be forgiven of. No, the point is, if you recognized your sin honestly, you would be bathing my feet in oil and tears as well. Before you can, you can become righteously angry at the evil of the world. It has to be set squarely before your eyes how much your sins deserve the wrath of God. And there's no way that you've experienced release from it except by Jesus taking that wrath that you and I deserved. Let me come at it one other way before I get quickly to the second point. And this is the way the Old Testament believer would have understood it. The way the Old Testament believer, the way it would have been preached to the Old Testament believer. And, and we heard it last week in the preface to the Ten Commandments. Before he gives the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Three reasons to, to, to obey any command. God is God. God is our covenant-keeping God, and God saved us. He redeemed us. Now, how would they have known that in the Old Testament? They would have known it back in Egypt. 
When God said, I'm going to send my death angel as the 10th plague. I'm going to send my death angel. And, and, and he's going to pass over Egypt. He's going to pass over every household, Israelite and Egyptian. And he's going to, he's going to kill the firstborn of every family. Unless you take the blood of a lamb and you cover your door with it. When he sees that blood, he'll pass over it. And he would remind them of that over and over again. There was only one reason any of you was, was spared from that. It's because of the blood. There are all kinds of things that could be happening behind that door. There were Egyptians behind doors covered in blood. There may have been Egyptians who had the day before beaten a slave. But said, there is salvation in blood. I'm going to do it. And the death angel passed over. There could be, there could have been a, a Jewish priest. There could have been an, an Israelite, a faithful Israelite man who studied the Torah every day and, and had it memorized and thought, well, I don't have to use the blood like the other people do because I'm so close to God. His firstborn would have been killed without the blood. And they come to the next house. And maybe husband and wife are yelling at each other because they didn't get, they burned the lamb or the children are running amok and, they're, and they're, they're, they're throwing leaven everywhere. They're acting up and there's blood on the door. He passes over. What was happening behind the door, the kind of people behind the door was irrelevant. It was all in the blood. The only way to be saved was to get behind the door of blood and get under the blood. So anytime we're tempted to think, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. You effectively open the door and say, judge me, death angel. My righteousness will get me a little bit ahead. The only place to be is under the blood. And when you understand that your sin, my sin, deserved the same judgment as Vladimir Putin or Charles Manson, the worst doer of iniquity you can imagine. Only then are you in a place to say, bring justice on the earth. But in bringing justice, please bring mercy. Now, maybe you're saying, yes, I really want to believe that, but you have no idea my sin. Or I want to believe that for somebody else, you have no idea. It's impossible. Well, I dare you to be more disqualified than Ahab. The Bible says of Ahab, he was the vilest man that ever lived. And when he repented, God saved him. He got killed shortly afterwards, so he couldn't sin anymore. But if God could save Ahab, he can certainly save you or anyone else.
And so think now of that, on the other hand, think of the most wicked person you imagine, the, the worst doer of evil. Maybe they've done it to you. And yes, there is the comfort that God someday will bring that evil, that thing that has been perpetrated against you or somewhere else or some, something against humanity. God will destroy that sin and bring it to justice. But remember to pray for mercy for that person first. The second part of the story that, that Peggy brought to our attention, these, these four chariots of, of horses, they all represent bad stuff. We don't have to get too technical. Red is war, black is a famine, or white is death, or dappled is, is various pestilences and, and, uh, and uh, natural phenomena. And those images can, can fluctuate something somewhat, but uh, the, the, the basic news is those colors represent bad stuff. All the evil stuff, all the evil forces, natural and human throughout the earth. And, and God said something similar to Ezekiel. These chariots, these apparently powerful forces of evil doing are running around all over the earth. But Ezekiel, I've got bigger chariots. And they're angelic. And they're roaming throughout the earth. And they are coordinating my victory. You just keep preaching. It may appear that the nations are winning. It may appear that injustice is over, over, overwhelming us. It may appear that crime is, is, uh, is, is, uh, is going to take us all down. It's going to destroy us ultimately. But no, he says, I have that under control. I will someday make all things right. In the meantime, you keep preaching the gospel. And you keep preaching it specifically toward the north. The north, because it represents where all the enemies came from toward Israel. You just keep marching that direction. Keep preaching. Keep advancing. And eventually you're going to find where my spirit, in verse 8, has set up a place of rest. Which is the fulfilled kingdom of God. When everything will be at peace. You know the real reason we have a missions conference every year? Or the real reason we have a domestic missions conference every year? These are progress reports. This coming week, you're going to hear progress reports. You'll hear unvarnished uh, realities as well, struggles that missionaries are having on the field, struggles that they have themselves, struggles with each other, struggles with life. They're real people. But you're going to hear a report of progress as this church has heard for 175 years. It is the only place, the only conference you can go and hear nothing but progress. Go to any other thing you invest in. Go, go to any other movement you've put your hope in. What's significant progress? So they, they do report there could be some good things happening. But in what place can you find 
progress of such eternal significance reported on as you do when our local mission partners and our world mission partners get together and say, this is what the Spirit of God has done through my efforts of sharing the gospel, demonstrating it in practical ways, which seems to be so illogical. The kingdom of God has moved forward this much more this year. And then as you're sitting in that conference, you're hearing those reports, I want you to back up and I want you to cast your imagination upward. And, and you, you, you can look at the news and you can see the various, the havoc that these variously colored horses are making. But then lift your eyes higher to those seraphic chariots that Ezekiel envisions. And I want you to see that despite that, progress is being made. Souls and systems and evil being conquered bit by bit by bit by bit until at the great day, the wrath of the lamb finally says it is finished and all evil is put down and nothing but the light of Christ shines in all of eternity. I heard another theologian, one who's coming to visit our seminary in the spring named Christopher Wright once told about a man he met who grew up in India and he grew up in the lowest caste in India, the Dalits. The Dalits are given the worst, most cursed jobs because they're thought to be the reincarnation of of those who least deserve any favor. And as he looked at his grandparents and his parents and his sisters and brothers suffering the injustice, the harassment, the abuse, he grew up, he thought, I'm going to do my best to achieve in school. I'm going to get a place of prominence and then I'm going to seek revenge on these people. He did do well in school. He got his engineering degree. He got an engineering professorship. And the first week on the job, as he's beginning to think, okay, I'm going to make this step and that step and this step to power so that I will have the power of the sword ultimately to destroy the people who have harassed my people. His first week on the job, he picked up a Bible that was in the faculty break room. And he turned it of all places to First Kings. And the story of Naboth's vineyard. And he read about Ahab and the way Jezebel took away his land. He said, I know, I know, my, I, I know that life. That my, I can picture my people in Naboth. Now what's going to happen? And then he saw what God did to Jezebel and Ahab on behalf of Naboth. And he said, I never knew such a God existed. He turned to the New Testament, to the text that we use for gospel priorities, Luke chapter 4. He is the one who sets the captive free, who, who brings good news to the poor, sight to the blind, 
There is a God like that. And he bowed and worshiped him. And he told Christopher Wright later, this is the God who turns the oppressor into a servant and the oppressed into a forgiver. That's real power. It's comforting to know that your God never sweeps sin under the rug. He's dealt with it in Christ and his angry wrath. We're spared of it only because of that. And his wrath will put it all things right someday. In the meantime, we pray, Lord, by your wrath, in your wrath, remember mercy. That at the great day, you might be revealed as the sovereign and just redeemer. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us not to lose hope. Not to take vengeance in our own hands, but to hand it to you humbly as those who have received mercy in your wrath. Get a name for yourself in us, through us, and throughout the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.